Welcome to the Gospel Care Podcast. My name is Jason Kovacs. I'm one of your hosts. Today, I'm joined by Pamela Kubas, one of the counselors on the Gospel Care Collective team. You're going to hear a little bit about her story and how she went from the world of professional counseling to biblical counseling. And on this episode, we'll be discussing gender ideology and how it affects our perspective on biblical counseling. Before we dive in, let me say a brief word about the podcast. We're three episodes in, and our goal is to have conversations that encourage those in need of hope and help to experience the care of Christ and to grow in our care of others. There are four areas that we care deeply about when it comes to counseling. The first is theology, then psychology, the third is ecclesiology, and number four, missiology. These inform everything we do. In these conversations, our hope is to discuss how each of these disciplines are foundational to Christ-centered care. We'll unpack these in future episodes. Now, for today's episode, we're going to be talking about gender ideology. As believers, our understanding of gender is rooted in the Bible. Therefore, it's important to examine how gender ideology may impact our approach to biblical counseling. For example, if we view gender as a social construct, we may be more likely to prioritize individual autonomy and personal fulfillment over biblical principles. We hope this discussion will be helpful in understanding gender ideology and how we as biblical counselors and the church can respond with the compassion of Christ. Well, thanks, Pamela, for joining me on the podcast here. Uh, I know this is uh, a, a new thing we're doing uh, as part of the Gospel Care Collective team. We're, we'll have other folks join us, probably other guests, but uh, but you're one of our counselors on our team, and I've been excited to be able to have this conversation with you. And uh, And as we've talked about in other podcasts, one of the goals of our podcast is just to have these conversations about topics that hopefully are important to people uh, that are listening, but there are also issues that that we are passionate about and and really burdened by. So, I'm um, I'm particularly uh, looking forward to the the, the topics we're going to talk about today, uh, particularly gender ideology and maybe get into some attachment, as that's I know an area that uh, is a specialty of mine and uh, something you're you've done a lot of research on as well. Uh, but maybe first tell. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I I know I've heard a little bit of this, but maybe tell us a little bit of your journey into becoming a counselor. You're also a professor. Uh, you've taught at numerous schools, so you've had a, a quite quite the uh, counseling uh, story and journey. So maybe tell tell us a little bit about how God brought you to this place. Yeah, um, it is definitely a journey. Because um, when you asked that question, I was thinking. I would never have said that I wanted to be a counselor when I was younger. I was definitely not on my radar. Um, I was really athletic. So I first started out in like um, athletic areas. I was really bad at math. Um, so the math and the science came really hard for me. And so I kept thinking, well, what do I want to do? Well, my undergrad is actually in health and wellness. I did pass. I did get through that. Um, but it was kind of that, well, a lot of sports, so I guess I'll do this. I really didn't know um, what God had for me. And part of that was I didn't really know who I was apart from sports. So it was just like that 
was just an easy decision for me to make because it's the only thing I knew. Um, and then when I, I had my first and I was actually pregnant with my second, and I remember just starting to read some, some books and I will add to that. It was during the time of having my, my first daughter that I really transitioned from being saved to walking in my salvation and working that out. Um, I, I really began to understand what that meant. And so I started reading some books that were very heart oriented. Um, we could call them counseling books. I don't think they were, they were just very deep in, in heart issues. And I just had this real strong belief that God was heading me in the direction of counseling. And so I ended up um, after my son was born, like three months of age. So I had a one and a half year old and a three month old. Um, I started my master's in counseling at Liberty and I was getting uh, my master's in marriage and family therapy. And I continued on. I graduated from there, um, technically December of 2008, but 2009, January is, is my technical graduation. So um, I, from there, I, I worked in patient hospitals um, for kids, um, outpatient clinics. I done, I've done a lot of pro bono work for different churches that I've, uh, where we've lived because we're military, so we've moved around a lot. Um, well, we were in South Korea, and when we came back, um, I knew I wanted to pursue my PhD, but I thought in higher ed, because I, I love teaching and producing more people who can do the same thing and just reaching more people. And so I loved that idea. So I, I first was going to do higher ed, but in the process of studying for the entrance exam, I had to read two, a book and I had to read an article. And the article was by David Paulson. And I don't even remember which one it was. It might've been um, the one on Ephesians. But he also has another one um, that's on this thing called Vicamp. So it has to do with how we see counseling and, and things. And, but he made a statement in there that said, um, and it was a statement that was very, almost like an obvious, like, well, you know, this is what we do kind of statement. And it was that we should always be um, helping the comfortable be uncomfortable and the uncomfortable to be comfortable. And so it was kind of, that's my version of that, but that was it. And it was all towards the stature of Christ. And I remember thinking, why in the world would you want to make someone who's comfortable, uncomfortable? Like that just does, that didn't make any sense to me. I was, I thought I never learned that in counseling. Like, why would you do that? Um, but the more that I read and the more that I researched and looked into to biblical counseling, it just made sense because even though we're comfortable doesn't mean we're healthy. And even though we're happy, doesn't mean we're, we're actually walking with the Lord and actually being the most human that we can be. Those things aren't always synonymous. Um, and I would argue that culturally it's often not synonymous with uh, what God wants for our lives. So I just, I went through months of just this turmoil because what I understood biblical counseling to be was a very ignorant understanding of it. In my mind, people would see the professionals first 
And then if they had spiritual issues, they could go to a biblical counselor. That was the extent of my knowledge. Um, it was very ignorant. I didn't understand it. I, I knew that the Bible was sufficient, but I didn't know what it was sufficient for. And um, so that was something I wrestled with. But over the months, I remember actually talking with my pastor from Oklahoma and telling him that I was just really in turmoil about what to do. And I remember his statement was, I think you already know what to do. And so in that moment, I ended up switching my PhD um, and began studying for the entrance exam for biblical counseling at SBTS. And so that was the big switch for me. And honestly, ever since then, I've just been growing more and more in love with biblical counseling and seeing the power of it, not the insufficiency of it, but actually the sufficiency of it and the power of it in people's lives. And so that's what pretty much brought me to this point. Um, and then getting to know you and what you guys do at the GCC and being able to be a part of that was just, it's an honor to do that. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what brought me where I am today. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, well, yeah. Thanks Pamela. It's, it's, uh, I love what you said about, you know, oftentimes we need to get uncomfortable because it's our comfort that actually means that we're not 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 healthy, but we're we're in unhealth, and, and mm -hmm. I think that's that's one of those paradigm shifts, right? Like that that uh, that that those biblical uh, category shifts that God uses our suffering, that uh, that that God seeks to to uh, to humble us, not to hurt us, uh, mm -hmm. but to help us. And in that humbling, that can be really challenging. That can be really, really hard. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, the, the, I, I, cause yeah, our culture says, well, you need to be happy, like counseling really in a, in a, in a non-biblical approach is let's do everything we can to, to ensure that you're happy, ensure that you have no anxiety, ensure that you have no conflict in your life remove everything that is negative and mm -hmm. and that's really an impossible goal yeah not, not that there's comfort and there's but do you know what i mean like i think that that we're, we're and we're seeing that more and more in our culture today like ultimately to yeah. the most ultimate of senses like like if you're uncomfortable in your body you can change that you can you don't mm -hmm. you're uncomfortable being uh, a male being a female, you can change that. Uh, that's yeah. where we're at in our culture. And it really removes having an ultimate purpose in life. If, if our purpose is happiness and our purpose is health and our purpose is, is comfort, then what? Like to what means? So what's after that? I, I want to know that even the joy that I experience and the pain that I experience has a purpose. And I think when we remove um, any kind of, we don't see negativity, we don't see um, constructive criticism, we don't see pain, we don't see suffering with a purpose, but we see our only purpose is to be happy or to be comfortable. Well, then what? What happens when we're not happy? What happens when we're not comfortable? Then how do we even um, make light of that? Um, it's just very, in my, in, in my understanding of scripture and in my opinion, I think it's, a, it's a very empty cup. 
Yeah. And yeah. I think that's why we see a lot of depression and anxiety because we're trying to fill that cup with stuff that's just not eternal and lasting. Yeah. And that that's so true. I mean, it makes me think of the my, my favorite of the catechisms is the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, qu- question one of the Heidelberg is, what is our only comfort in life and death? Uh, our only comfort in life and death. And it's that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Yeah, and that's that's purpose right there. That's beyond me. Yeah. 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 We need to, I, I feel like too, we, I need personally to be reminded of that every day. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, my flesh wants to find comfort in myself and in my circumstances. Like it still does. <laughs> it's still mm-hmm. like, no, you can find some comfort here. Like, but, and there is purpose here. There is, you know, apart from Jesus, and I need to be continually reminded that God, God has created, and there's there's beauty and there's good, but ultimately, my hope and purpose and and meaning is is in Him. Um, yeah. So yeah, I find a lot of counseling is is rem- the, the ministry of reminding, the ministry of. Uh, helping people remember what they already know in many cases. Yeah. And I think, I think though, that the more we go into this modern era of very instantaneous self, all of these, these ideologies that we're living with, I think it's actually maybe even less reminding and actually telling because less and less are in the word less and less are going to church. They don't see it, the point of it. And a lot of the churches that we have out there are not physically sound. Um, Doctrine, it doesn't save you, but doctrine informs your salvation and informs your, your work, like your activity and your mind. You know, in Romans 12, one, where it says that we would not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It connotes a doctrinal, journey like i have to actually put active i have to be active in my understanding and my knowledge that i take in and people just aren't doing they're just receiving 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 and not thinking and that is part of counseling when people come is i actually have to remind myself that a lot of times the people when i say well you know the story i go they might not know the story yeah because it's just not this common uh place anymore uh where i grew up most people were in church most people went on sunday things weren't open on sunday you couldn't buy gas like it was just this this cultural understanding that people went to church people were learning the bible and that's just not the way it is anymore yeah yeah that's a that's a really good point yeah we're we're having to introduce categories introduce truth 
in, in ways that, yeah, in the past we, we, we may not have had to. Um, well, I know I wanted to talk about the issue of gender ideology just because it it's such a, as we mentioned, it's such a, a huge issue today. We, we're at a point in our culture where um, it, it's, it's prevalent. It's in the public schools. Uh, if you, if you're a Christian and you've not encountered, uh, gender ideology, uh, around you, then, you know, that that's amazing because it's so, uh, so prevalent. And I, I think, you know, as we, as we talked earlier, uh, this is an issue that the church is starting to talk more about, but there's still not much conversation happening around it. Uh, or as much as is needed, and and I think part of that probably is because of how controversial it 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 can be, and uh, you know there's a lot of fear around this if you if you start talking about these things. Um, but I'd love to hear just a little bit of kind of your perspective on this, and kind of how you came to have a have a burden for those that are dealing with the gender struggles, gender ideology, uh, families, uh, individuals, like how, tell me a little bit of your journey with that and, and, and your experience with that. Yeah. Well, like counseling, I didn't grow up thinking this is something I really want to counsel on or even thought it would be a, an issue to counsel on, to be honest. Um, but so I, I struggled with that when I was younger. Um, all the way into high school and not in just a little bit but a lot and yet I grew up in the 80s and 90s and so it wasn't a thing where because I was struggling with it then automatically it meant something um, and I'm grateful for that actually because I was I was allowed to play with the things I wanted to play with I was allowed to like the things that I liked but I had parents that also trusted in the Lord's creation and in the Lord's creativity. I actually literally had a conversation with my mom last week because she had listened to my, my uh, story that I put out online. And I asked her, I said, was there like, there had to be some fear in you all when you were seeing me go through this and there had to be some nervousness. How did you um, deal with that? And her response, like she, she actually was like, mm, it wasn't really that big a deal for us. But at the same time, we just, we love the Lord and we know that he doesn't make mistakes and he's mm. very creative in from, you know, Psalm 139, he knit you in my womb is what she was saying. And, and that has a lot to do with your personality and, and your talents and what you like and all of these things, they're made for a purpose. And he will use that, not just when you're little, but he'll use that when you're older. And I'm so grateful I had that um, because it wasn't necessarily they're trying to control the environment and control what I liked or didn't like, but it was just them resting and trusting in God's creation. Um, that he would use all of those likes and dislikes for something even greater when I'm an adult. And honestly, I think that's what brought me to this point is because I saw the Lord working in me, even when I didn't see it, like 
retrospectively looking back and seeing his divine hand on all of that um, to bring me to where I am today, um, to understand the struggle, but to understand the goodness of God, to understand um, not just that, you know, we have to be careful. Sometimes when we say God doesn't make mistakes, he doesn't, but people do. And people, he allows people to make choices. And so we have to be careful though, that we don't, and, and our feelings are very, um, they're disruptive, they're distorted. They, you know, the, the word of God says that they are evil, right? Our feelings are not a great predictor of what is true and good. They're only a reflection of our interpretation of what we're going through. And so they can be very deceptive. And so if I had gone based on my feelings, I wouldn't be here today. Um, I wouldn't be in this, you know, chair working with families and loving on God's people and um, and having a perspective on things like gender that is compassionate, but truthful. And so I'm grateful for that experience. And I'm really grateful my parents for my parents' understanding and trust in who the Lord is and his goodness. Um, because he does not make mistakes. And so we have to figure out what is he actually trying to do? And we know that because of Bertoldo. And when things are unclear, we go back and we see it and we just trust, okay, but this is a principle that he says, like male and female. There were two binary from the very beginning. And so he doesn't, no, he doesn't talk about all the other possible genders because he didn't create possible genders. He created male and he created female. And that's a principle that we have to stand by and we work things out as we go. And so that's a steadfast truth for me, um, no matter what the issue is in counseling. What, what are you seeing? I mean, you've, you yeah, obviously, yeah, you've, you've been there and you have your own story and, and now as you're counseling others and you've been counseling for a long time now, maybe I'd be curious kind of how you've seen things change. Like, like you mentioned back when, when you were a teen. Um, and I, I think about this often. I'm like, I have five teenagers and, uh, and, and I'm often thankful that I was, I'm not a teenager today with all of the, with social media, with all of the challenges today. Um, I'm thankful I was a teenager when I, when I was, it was hard enough. Yeah, in, me in too. the 90s, you know, when I was a teen. Um, but how how have you seen things change over the last few decades? And and then, you know, today, what are you seeing as the challenges for individuals and teens and, yeah. and families? Yeah, and when I say this, I don't even think this is like simply just about gender or anything, but you know. And, this, and remember, there's nothing new under the sun. I, I think what we're seeing is a greater acceptance of things, but not. But the issue is not new. The, I would say the issues are not new. But I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing is different is an authoritative standard. Um, you know, I even said like when I was growing up, the standard. You know, not for everybody, but I would say a lot of people there was a standard of okay, well, you know. The Bible doesn't says that that's wrong. So that is my standard. And as far back as you go, I mean, there's a standard that for a long time was just a 
a given, right? Most people saw it as a given. Um, but that is not so anymore. And the authoritative standard, and this is not just recently, this is something that has been occurring over centuries, right? The shift from God as an authoritative standard, the word of God as an authoritative standard, to I get to be my authoritative standard. And when that happens, I mean, and that's not new, right? I mean, Genesis 3, when Eve listened to the serpent, she decided it would be better for her to become her own authoritative standard. What And question what is God's goodness for her. And she wanted to be able to choose what is good for her. When she made that choice, that is exactly what she was doing. Is She was shifting authoritative standards. And so that's not new, but I think the acceptance of doing that has become much more um, the popular way to go is that if it's, if I don't agree with it, I don't have to agree with it. It's not right then for me. If I don't feel that way, then it's fine because I'm my own authoritative standard. And in the long run, that just doesn't work, right? For multiple reasons. But I think that in, in my opinion, that has been the biggest shift is the acceptance of a self-authoritative standard. So now I can, I can choose, you know, my gender, I can choose my sexuality, I can choose um, whatever I want to do, how I want to live, um, how I want to present myself, I get to choose that because I'm my own standard. And I know personally, I, I that would make me very fearful. Because I, I can't live my own standard. I don't know whether I, I really don't know whether I'm doing well or not, because then I can just change my standard. And so I do think, in my opinion, that has been the biggest shift, but it's also the biggest problem. Because when we when we say that, and I think that's what's happening, is people are saying, well, we need to let children make this choice for themselves. They are their own standard. Well, children have no clue, right? They come into the world by what we call as passive receivers. This is why the family environment is so vital is because they just trust and they just have faith and they just believe in the caregivers that they're around, whether they're good or not. And so from that, they're forming all of these ideas. This is what relationships look like. This is what relationships don't look like. This is what love looks like. This is what love doesn't look like. But it doesn't mean that any of their understanding of it is actually true and good. And so when we start to allow First of all, people to be their own standard, adults to be their own standard. And then we say, well, then we need to allow children to be their own standard. So if they feel that way, then they are that way. I mean, it's chaotic and we're going to pay for it down the road. I am so grateful that no one said to me when I was 10 or 11, hey, you know, there's hormone replacement and you can literally change from a girl to a boy. I was taught that because I hated being a girl. But I didn't have a right understanding of why God made me the way he made me. And so I'm so thankful that that didn't occur with me. Um, because I would have, I didn't have a standard to go by. My only standard was my feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, we are seeing that, aren't we? You know, the, the, how the feel, our feelings, our happiness, our comfort, kind of going back to that mm -hmm. is really now the standard and the authority. Um, and the right now the right now comfort, the right now happiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And we know that that is bleeding as well, because we're actually not in control of all those things. And when we, when we actually come to that realization, I can be happy right now, and I can choose to act like I'm happy right now, but I have no idea what 30 minutes down the road in a car will look for me. Yeah, yeah, the immediacy. Uh, mm-hmm. and our, 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 I think the lack of patience that we have, I, I feel it personally in my own ways. Like, you know, we live in a, such a culture that, that says, well, if you want comfort, you can have it right now. You just swipe. Mm-hmm. You just, <laughs> and so how yeah. that has permeated so much of our lives. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah like how much of us, we change over time. We grow over time. And yeah. Because uh, think about even, even the gender issue is a very immediate, instead of learning to love who God created you to be, that takes time. I mean, I'm almost like, I'm closer to 50 than anything else. And I am still learning to love who God made me to be. As I grow older and my body breaks down, I'm, I could fight that. Or I can also say, you know what, though, this is part of life. And I'm going to learn to love the way that I am becoming as an older adult. And I, that's a choice I have, but it's not an immediate overnight thing. And I actually love that God isn't immediate like that. Because we grow in the storms, we grow through time, we grow in learning to be patient and learning to trust and learning to have faith in a God who isn't just instantaneous. That's how relationships develop. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so key. That's so key because, yeah, we're really saying the children that are struggling, you know, that that their their happiness is ultimate. Their comfort is ultimate. Immediacy is 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 something that 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 we must you know uh, follow. And so, and, and then along with that, that they're they're in the wrong body. They've been cr- made wrong. That there's something wrong with mm-hmm. them that they need to fix. And the it, it's it's wild the 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 things we're doing and and in in our in our culture today with with children children who can't mm-hmm. consent. I I think that that conversation of consent is is such a fascinating one, and you know, uh, uh, we're in a wild space with that in terms of, like you said, hormone replacement, puberty blockers, the, the medical things that mm-hmm. are happening that that families are and children are going through as yeah. children under as minors, uh, lifelong life altering uh, changes. Uh, as children being being done and yeah yeah and you know it it saddens me when adults choose to do those things as well because and I was just explaining this to someone else the other day that that if humanity being fully human is being exactly who God created me to be every decision I make that is away from his goodness so when he says don't do this or do this and I choose the opposite. In that moment, I'm actually less human than he designed me to be. And when we remove that ability for a child to grow into who God created them to be, body as well, what are we gonna do when they come to that own realization themselves and they want to be who God designed them to be in the fullest and they can't take back what has been done? Um, it's not that God can't still use them. It's not that he does not love them. It's not none of that. But 
we tend to separate, and this has been, I mean, we know this, this has been an issue since our our fathers of Christianity and all those, right? We want to separate, okay, this is who I am in emotions, in thought, in relationships, all of that. And then here's my body. And that is not how God created us. He chose to create people in his image in bodily form. I mean, he even did that with Christ. Christ came back in bodily form. The body matters. And so to kind of create this dichotomy between body and everything else, it's not biblical, first of all, um, but it's so hurtful because I have said one of the things I think the church is going to have to get really, um, they're really going to be mindful of this and intentional and they're going to have to start asking the question, what are we going to do when we have someone who comes to the church, is a follower of Jesus Christ, loves the Lord with all their heart, but is now in a male body, but is actually biologically a female, but they can't go back. Like there's no way to fix that. How are we going to love them rightly, allow them to serve, um, be involved in ministry? now that they really have been redeemed, but their body can't be redeemed until Christ comes back. Because a lot of the things that are happening, like there are children who are, girls who are getting hysterectomies before they barely even hit puberty. And you, you can't put that back. It doesn't make her not a female, God made her female, but it changes the course of her life forever. So what happens when she realizes I didn't, I don't want that. I want to be who God designed me to be, but as far as how her body looks and, and works, it can't go back. How is the church going to respond to that lovingly and compassionately and allowing her to be a part of ministry? Like, I don't think a lot of churches are asking that right now because that is going to happen. All of these children, so I should say so many of these children who are being allowed and being, I would say, manipulated and pushed in this direction, there's going to be a day where the Lord is going to get a hold of their heart and they are going to want to be all that he designed them to be. And on this side of, of, of the world, like they can't, right? On this side of eternity, they, they can't become all of who he designed them to be because part of that has that choice has been made. Mm -hmm. And that choice is really final for this side of eternity. And that's where I, I have this big heart for it because I'm like, the church is we can't change some of this, but we sure can change how we're going to respond to it in 10 years. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. With love, with compassion and truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, Pamela, for in terms of care, like how do, how does you talk about the church being compassionate in our care? Like we have to think about these things, issues of body and soul. That's so important. We could talk, talk, a whole a lot about that and and I, I, we will in future episodes um but in, in particular when we're talking about uh, gender uh issues of gender sexuality uh teens families that are going through this right now what mm -hmm. what do you see as the need for care like what does care look like what does counseling look like what what, what do you say to families? What do you say to these teens? Yeah. Well, to start off, I would say it shouldn't be much different. 
because we as especially Christian counselors or biblical counselors, we ought to be keeping the first thing, the first thing. And the first thing is when people come, when people meet with me, I want to know, and I don't ask this first thing, but through my questions, I want to get to know, do they have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that is the first thing. People, no matter what you're going through, no matter what dilemma you're having, and I would say they're, they're, they're on four levels, right? We're either having, and I shouldn't say or, they're and, because they're, they all work together. But we have relationships with the Lord, whether we deny him or we obey him. We have relationship issues with others. We have relationship issues with ourselves, right? Like how I understand who I am and all of that. And then I interpret my situation in a way that affects all of these. And so whenever I have anybody come in, I'm going to be looking at, first of all, do they have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's going to change how I counsel. If they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, well, that is the first thing. And I'm not evangelizing like up front in their face or anything, but I want to share the love of Jesus Christ with them in my counsel. I want to meet them where they are. I want to help them with the, the whatever is first and foremost. But when I say help them, I don't mean like, okay, tell me what you want out of this counseling and let's go get it. I want to help meet them where they are because of what I know they need. And if they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the very thing that they need. When it comes to families who are struggling with this and friends of people who are struggling with this, you still have to keep the first thing, the first thing. And that's love them like Jesus would love them. Because as soon as they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he's going to work on the rest. The gender stuff, it's important, but it's not the first thing. Just like I would say, sexuality is not the first thing. The relationship with Christ is the first thing. And so often, I think, I think you said in the beginning, one of the reasons the church is struggled with this is because of, you know, the fear. And um, I can't remember what the other thing you said was. But I want to add to it because I also think it's just ignorance. We're afraid because we don't know what to do. It's such a touchy subject and it's such a different kind of issue, right? So it's, we've become much more open to talking about depression. We've become much more open to talking about anxiety and that's all great. But now we're going into a new territory that the church just doesn't know a lot about. And so it's hard to talk about something that you just don't know what to do about or do with. But I always said, well, it's not as hard as we think because the same people who are struggling with gender are the same people struggling with depression. They need, they need to have a relationship that is healthy with the Lord. They need to understand how the Lord sees them, how the Lord loves them. And they see that oftentimes through our love for them. So if people don't feel welcome into my home because of their gender issues or their sexuality or whatever, they're not being able to see the love of Jesus because Jesus ate with sinners. He ate with the sick. He ate with those who are struggling. And that's all of us. I would hate it if someone didn't let me into their home because I had a shaved head. Like, or because I had tattoos. Because that is not who I am. That is just my head and my arms. Like it's not, it doesn't, it's not my character. It's not 
how much I love Jesus or anything like that. So it, it becomes this personal issue. And I think that's why one of the reasons why things like saying the word gender identity, I really try not to say that or sexual identity. I don't, I don't like that because that is not who we are. And I don't want to participate in, in, in agreeing that yes, that is your gender identity. That is, I would say something you identify with, but it is not who you are. And so I, I know it's just words, but I try to say like gender struggle or gender confusion or gender issue, but not gender identity. Because my focus is that the people I'm with, whether they believe in the Lord or not, that, that they begin to see who God created them to be, and they find their identity in their relationship with Jesus Christ, and in the fact that they're made like God, and by God, and for God. That's our identity, not our gender, not our sexuality, not our job, not my family. Um and so I'm really careful with stuff like that, but I still want to keep first things the first thing. And that is, I need to love them out of the overflow of my love for the Lord and his love for me, uh, because that changes everything. And it opens up the ability to talk with them, to understand their story, to understand where they're coming from. Um, that's what most people want is they want to be seen and they want to be heard. Yeah. I love that. See, what would you say to, I mean, there may be some moms and dads even listening to this conversation and they've got a teen that is in the middle of this, that is confused, is struggling. Um, I think so much of what you just said is so applicable for, for the, for this mom and dad, but what, what, what would you, what would you tell them? What would be your, if, if they were to call you um, meet with you, what, what would be a few things that you would encourage them with? Yeah. So, so here's, here's the thing. So we know that the Bible is a narrative, right? It's this grand narrative from beginning to end about the love that God has for us and, and his purposes for us. And I so often say, we need to change the narrative that our kids are hearing. We need to change the narrative of what they're receiving from the world. And, and we do that by, for instance, when a child is struggling or a teen is struggling with some of these issues, often the parent's response is to defend the, the grand narrative, which is fine, but it's not productive. What we need to do is show the narrative in their lives, not defend it, demonstrate it. And we can do that by asking questions like, you know, that's like, if a guy loves to sew, he loves to cook, he loves theater, he loves those things, being able to change the narrative and questions like, you are, you know, you're amazing at that. It's incredible how the Lord gifted you in those ways. It's incredible how the Lord gifted you and talented you in your sewing and your cooking in, in those areas. How do you think he might use that later on in your life as a man of God? Right? So we have to begin to change the narrative and get our children and our teens and our people to think about the fact that God's part of this. He doesn't want the narrative to be changed that now you're not a boy anymore. You're not a man anymore. But how do we change the narrative from just saying that's wrong? Because first of all, gender normative, that's a whole nother thing. That's cultural. It's 
very subjective to geography and to all, all of these different demographics and, and race and all these different things. So to put a gender normative on a Christian man or a Christian woman, I believe is wrong. Um, I may not be your gender normative female, but I love the Lord in my femaleness. And so, but being able to change that normative to say, I wonder how God's going to use you the way he made you for his glory later on. And that narrative needs to be changed, right? So that, so that we can begin to see God in these abnormal things. God rarely does things normal. Like he just, he doesn't, right? He takes people that we would never expect and he uses them in mighty ways. And it's also that he can receive the glory. So why would it be any different when you take someone who it doesn't fit the mold and see how God's going to use them for his glory, but not change the mold? Because that's a human perspective on it. That's not a godly perspective on it. We don't need to change his mold. I think about Jeremiah, you know, I believe it was Jeremiah 17, where, where he says, you know, he sent Jeremiah down to see the potter's house. And and this is about Israel, but he sends him down there and he and he's, he says, just as that potter was shaping the clay at the potter's discretion, basically, as the potter saw fit, he says, so too can I do that with, with you. Well, God is constantly working us into the mold that he wants us to be in. And why would I believe that I can make that look better than he can? Rather go, oh. He made me like this. I wonder how he wants me to function for his glory. He made me to look like this. He made me to like these things. He made me to go, how can I use this for his glory? Within the parameters that his word talks about. And so to me, that that is much more glorifying and much more honoring. And I'm going to find a lot more joy in that than trying to go against the creator's design. So that's what I would encourage parents to do is one, love your kids. Love your kids. Listen to your kids, even when it hurts. Listen to what they're going through. Listen to what they're hearing in, in the world. Just listen. And listen is not listening to respond or listening to defend your position. We all want to be heard. We're created to be heard. And we're created to be seen. A lot of times I think about, you know, Sarah and and her mistress and there's that back and forth going on but eventually when god comes to the mistress's aid what did she say he saw me he sees me that is really important and seeing me isn't seeing everything you want to see in me it's seeing everything about me even the ugly and and sticking by me and walking with me it doesn't mean approving it means accepting who god made me as not approving the choices I'm making in what God made me. Does that make sense? There's a very big difference yeah. between those two. Yeah. No, that I love that's beautiful. And um, I actually think that's where the church struggles. And and I would say parents even struggle yeah. is does acceptance mean approving? And it doesn't. Yeah. I can accept my children because God gave them to me and I love them. And nothing they do can make me not accept and love them. Mm. However, 
that doesn't mean that I approve of their choices. It doesn't mean that I approve of a lifestyle. It doesn't mean that I do that, but I can still love and accept them as my children that God gave to me. Um, there's a very big difference. And I always say there's not a fine line. Yeah. There's not. Yeah. It's, it's very clear that I can love someone that I don't agree with. And I can tell them I don't approve of what you're doing, but I still love you and I care for you. Yeah. that That's huge, isn't it? Like, like <laughs> not just for our kids, but just culturally and in the church mm -hmm. and in our cities and our world, like that I, in many ways, that's that, that idea uh, is, is, is one that, that we really struggle with and, and is, is denied in many cases. Like yeah. if you don't, if, if you're, if you don't fully agree with me, there's no possible way you can accept me is, is, is a mantra. Um, yeah. And I think it's driven by uncomfortableness because here's the thing. We all have really disgusting sin in our life, but a lot of us, we don't, you can't see it right? It's not really visible. The, one of the struggles with gender and sexuality is you can see it. And so when people come into the church or we see people who are obviously going through this, this confusion and this struggle in their life, we know, like, it's very visible. And we can get this kind of like disgusting feeling in us and that's what we have to begin to stop uh, living in that fear because our, our sin is just as disgusting and it's just as separating from God. The difference is I can walk into Panera and nobody sees my disgusting sin, right? No one sees it at all. They don't see my struggles necessarily. They don't see what I'm fighting inside. You know, as Paul said that I want to do, but I don't. And this confusion and this tension, this inner turmoil within me, they don't have to see it. Whereas someone who is, is changing their gender, they're going through this. It is very, very visible. And we have to start getting to the point where we don't feel yucky around that, that we feel compassion, that we want to show kindness that we want to show them that we actually love them in the midst of this, that we see them as a person, an image bearer, not as someone going through a gender issue. Like we start placing identity in them too. And that's why I'm so big on that because I don't want to see them as that's their identity. That's not their identity. That is something that they're dealing with, but it doesn't make them who they are. They're so much more than that. That's huge. That's good. What what resources would you and do you recommend if, if someone's looking for resources, not just on the why, but even maybe on the care side of things? Because I know there's a lot, yeah. probably a lot more resources uh, on the the why issue and the what issue, like what is happening and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know a lot of books on the how. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of those out there, but I would say, so like uh, Laura Perry um, has a autobiography and it's called Transgender to Transform. And then there's also one by, um, I have it over here. Let's see. It's, um, yeah, by Butterfield. This is her personal testimony as well. Openness Unhindered. 
Um, and the reason I bring up autobiographies are because these are people who share a story and it's so personal about how someone or people loved them to the point that it softened their heart and they were able to actually hear the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, we actually begin to hear who we are and who we are created to be. The gospel message isn't just about how to go from life to death eternally. It's how to live life right now in the bodies he gave us, in the personality that we have for his glory. And so the more we understand the gospel message, the more we can understand who we are. And I think that those two books are really good. Um, you know, some of the other ones really, they're mostly the why, but I do think, so um, uh, there's Andrew Walker's God in the Transgender Debate. Um, there is Sam Alberry constantly. This book here, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. This is fantastic. This covers a, a wide array, but it's important because within gender and sexuality, the body has become the main thing. Even though they, it's kind of like it's not the main thing, right? Because I can change it whenever I want, but it still is, um, in that sense, it is the main thing. And so that's really good. There's also Yar House, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Um, that's good. And then I believe it's Le Matthew Lapine. I think it was his book. I'm just not seeing it right now. I'm trying to find it. Um, the you know logic what of the, the logic of the body? Yes. Now that one, I'm going to tell you, it's like a dissertation. So it's not, it's not a quick read. It's not um, a read that everybody would just want to pick up and read. But I think it, it provides this really good um, understanding of the body and how God sees the body. But there's also another one um, that was written. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I would have to, I wasn't prepared for this. You didn't prepare me for this. Um, <laughs> we can put it in the I notes would, later too. Yeah, we probably have to put later. it in the, we, yeah, we probably have to put it in the notes. Um, but it's probably the best one, which I can't remember at this point, because I think it's all my digital media. Um, but I'll, we can put that in the notes because I actually think it's one of the most robust as far as it talks about some of the arguments that are out there, but then it gives the biblical understanding of all this that's going on. So that one actually is easier to read. Um, and it's just so well said, probably the one of the best ones out there. So I'll make sure we. Okay. The, the mystery book, the best one. The mystery book. You'll have to listen and then look at the end. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, good, good. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Um, what, what about counseling? Like, what would you say is, is counseling something that you would recommend for a family, for uh, a teen, for a child, uh, if this is a struggle? Yeah, so again, it's gonna be, it's gonna be dependent on what they want. Right. So if I have someone wanting counseling because they want me to walk through the gender transition with them, it's not that I would say no necessarily, but it would be amended. Right. Because I am not going to be walking through them in a supportive role for that type of change. But if they want to talk through their choices and they want to understand consequences of what happens when I do this, what could happen 10 years down the road, what, what is the right answer for me? I don't mind working through that with them. 
But when they make the decision to change, that's where I wouldn't really be able to help them because I think about 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, it's really familiar. And one of the parts of that love says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so when I walk with someone through something that is biblically wrong, I'm somewhat saying I'm rejoicing with you in this, especially from a supportive role. And so I think we have to have clear boundaries on where that kind of stops. Um, I wouldn't stop loving them. I wouldn't stop checking in on them. I wouldn't do any of those things. Like I, I would continue to love them. But from a supportive role, that's where I think sometimes we forget that as counselors, we are actually going to be held accountable for every word we say and every action we do inside that counseling session. And I think sometimes we can take that off and we think, well, I'm just here for their mess. Well, we're actually part of that mess the minute they walk into our room or our virtual office or whatever it is. So everything that I say, everything that I do, I'm going to be held accountable for. And I don't want to be held accountable for seemingly supporting something that I believe actually will hurt them in the long run because of the fact that God didn't design us to do things like that to our bodies, um, but rather live in the bodies we have for his glory. Um, so as counselors, I would say that's one aspect. But other than that, when you're in that counseling room, it's the same thing. I'm going to listen to their story. I, I can't I can't help them see how God's story transforms theirs and interprets theirs, which that's a quote from Henderson. So Dr. Uh, Henderson, he says that, you know, God's story interprets ours and redeems our story. But if I don't know their story at all, they're not going to want to listen to how God's um, story does that in their life. And so I want to, you know, listen to their heart. I want to listen to their struggle. I want to really understand it, not just taking notes, right? I want to understand it. I want to be able to get to the point where I am, I am understanding their hurt much more than when they ever walked in that room. Um, and, and then what I want to be able to do is help them to begin to walk through those thoughts, walk through those emotions, understand it themselves right? Because we tend to live in our experience, but we don't look back and understand our experience. And that's part of counseling is helping them have God's perspective on their experience. Um, and I can't do that if I don't first listen and then help the, and then begin to ask really good questions for them to be able to understand what it is that they're into, how they're interpreting their experience. Um, there's no way to change the trajectory if I don't do that. So um, question for me is really huge and helping them think through what they just told me and uh, not me telling them how it needs to be. That's good. That's good. So would you, for a, for a family that does want to, like they, they're wondering how do we support our, our teen? How do we support our child or that child? Would, would do you recommend counseling for a teen that is, uh, that is struggling currently, uh, not necessarily like in the process of transition and moving in that direction, but just in that place of deep, deep confusion and darkness that can be so yeah. common. What do you recommend for, for, for that family and that child, that teen? Yeah. Well, I would recommend both. If the teen wants to come to counseling, 
I would recommend that. Um, if there anybody who's willing and available and wants to come, I, I would never say no. It, we're just going to look at the we're just going to look at the parents. But I would also say the parents need to be a part of it. Now, there's sometimes where the parents don't want to be a part of it. So I take whoever is willing to come, right? But because that is everybody is held accountable for their own choices and their own decisions. Um, but parents are so influential. And a lot of times we think parents, a lot of times as parents, we're like, nah, it is what it is. Okay, that that thing alone is not scriptural. It isn't, it isn't what it is. Reality is what God says is reality. And so as parents, our goal and our our, I would say the, the way that God wants us to work with our kids is that we continually are working with them to begin to see God's God's reality and begin to see God's perspective on what they're going through. And so as parents coming into counseling, my first thing would be they need to learn to do what I'm already doing. When their child is saying, I feel this way, a lot of times our gut instinct is, well, that's not real, or you shouldn't feel that way. Well, but they do feel that way. So what are we going to do now? Because if you just shut it down, they're going to get information from somewhere else. And we already know what the world's feeding. So for them to say, I feel this way, and then for a parent to learn to say, can you help me understand that more? Can you help me understand what it is that you're feeling? And providing this safe environment for them to feel things that aren't good, to feel things that are confusing, and to be able to help them learn why it is that they might be feeling that way. And what does God say about that in a loving and compassionate way? We know God's kindness leads to repentance, not pointing the finger, not throwing scripture at them, but loving them and being kind to them in the struggle is what's going to help lead them to repentance and lead them to a perspective that they that is right and holy and healthy. Um, and so teaching parents those skills and working with parents even aside from that on how they're feeling about this struggle. I mean, most parents today that are going through this with their kids didn't like have kids and go, well, we'll just kind of see what happens in 10 years and, and maybe we'll just wait to name them then because then they can choose what they want to be. Most parents don't go into parenting with that ideology. So especially Christian parents, they're going to be really struggling with, oh my gosh, like I don't even know how to do this. Churches are going to have to be a lot better about walking alongside families without the judgment there, but the compassion. Wow, this is hard. Wow, this is something that I bet you never expected. How can we help you? How can we love on you? Um, because parents more and more, if they're feeling judged, they're just not going to go to church. And that is not what we want to have happen. So I think just teaching skills, meeting them in that moment, showing the compassion and kindness that, that Christ would show in those moments is what we need to be doing, but giving them the tools and how to, to train up those children in the way that they should go. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you, you brought up the church as well. I, I think that that's a huge area, you know, like we'll be talking to pastors, maybe that are listening to this ministry leaders. Uh, we want to encourage churches to, to, to really step into this space so that what you just said, you know, that parents and and teens that are in the in the fire in the midst of this, that that they can go to the church, they can go to the pastor, your pastor, and uh, they can go to you who's listening here, and and have a compassionate um, and loving reception 
with truth um, and and resources and tools. Uh, I think that's that's going to become a, it already is a great need. It's going to become even greater uh, in, in our culture today. Um, yeah, and you know, I tell my my students all the time, the best thing you can do as a counselor is get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think churches have to do the same. We have to stop worrying about our reputation. We know from scripture, God will take care of that. When we are trying to please men, we can't also please God. So if churches are so worried about, oh my gosh, you know, if we let people in, what are they going to think? Or, you know, if we say that we can love you, even when you're going through this struggle, then people might think we're approving of your behavior. Like we got to stop doing that. We have to get to the point where we say, what does God's word say about love? He doesn't say that we should condone it, but he doesn't have these like, okay, you can only love this way for someone who is struggling. We actually see Jesus and his first thing is to meet them where they are and in the, in the attempt to bring them to Christ. And that line between that acceptance of who they are and what they're struggling with is very easy to do when we look at the way that Jesus loved people. But we don't separate it from, and that's where some churches have gotten, right? They accept, and then it just comes out as approval because they don't ever bring doctrine. They don't ever bring scripture. They don't ever bring what God says about it. And honestly, that's really hurtful because I, my goal is that people get to experience their humanity in the way that God designed it to be. And anytime that we accept, but then we don't bring in God's word and we don't lead them to repentance and we don't lead to be a part of leading them to become who God wanted them to be, we're actually saying, we don't really care about you. Yeah. We don't really yeah. care that you live life to the fullest as God designed it to be. We'll just be nice. Yeah. I don't want someone just to be nice to me if I'm living in sin. I want them to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong and it's not good for you and it doesn't glorify God. Yeah. I want that. Yeah. And so I, I, I would hope that that would be our goal as Christ followers in the church. Love them, make them feel welcome, have them really actually be welcome all towards leading them to know a savior who died for that sin, just like he died for mine Amen. and that struggle, just like he died for my struggles. Cause we constantly push against God's design for us. Theirs just looks different than mine. Yeah, and so we just have to begin to love them like that. Yeah. Make, make, uh, I mean, Galatians six, one. You who, brothers, you who is spiritual, if any of you is caught in sin, you who is spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's right mm -hmm. there. I, I even yeah. think of that and I think of back to Genesis 3, uh, where it all began, <laughs> where we all yeah. where we all find ourselves in that story of Adam and Eve turning from God, turning to our mm -hmm. own devices. And in that moment, in, in, our, in Adam and Eve's sin and shame and guilt, what does God do? But he comes to yeah. them and he asks them a question. I think he, he essentially models Galatians 6.1. He comes, he says, where are you? Who told you that? What did you do? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and yet he, and I think that's so important that you did this because everybody who comes into the church, I don't care who you are. We are constantly attempting to cover our own shame and our own yes. guilt. And I would say, I don't love to use the word identity, like gender identity, but I do believe gender struggles are an identity issue. 
but the problem is we're all attempting to take what we can do looking around whether it's money whether it's resources whether it's people whether it's uh, sexuality or gender we're trying to take what we think will cover that shame and make us feel better about ourselves and fill this really you know this I've heard people say God-shaped hole or whatever, but this longing that we have for, for our creator, even if we don't recognize it, and we're all doing that. And what did God do? He sacrificed and he said, I have a better way to cover yes. that shame. Yeah. And if we don't have a welcoming environment in our churches for people who are going through very visible shame, right, and hurt and guilt, so that they can actually be led to the one who actually covers that shame and guilt, then shame on us. Amen. Right. Shame yes. on us for that. Yeah. Um, because that is what they're looking for. Cause we can tell because they're attempting to close themselves in something that they yeah. think will work. Yeah. And it, it, isn't it true? It's what we're all looking for. Like we all want our shame covered and our guilt taken mm-hmm. care of and removed. And it's, oh, it's such a beautiful, beautiful reality of the gospel that that's exactly what god does is he covers our shame he clothes yeah. us he does what we long for but and we try to do on our in our own way yeah. again and again and again but he does it um, yeah yeah and i i one last thing I, I i think of as you're sharing here uh i think it was ray ortland said uh it's gospel Safety plus gospel plus time leads to transformation. And and as you were talking, I was thinking about that because so often we we in the church will provide gospel, you know, lots of gospel, and then maybe safety initially, like you're accepted, you're welcome here, and here's the gospel, or maybe you know, and it could just be safety, like you're welcome you're just welcome. And there's no gospel, no truth. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, but I think that that combination of not just safety and, you know, meaning welcome and acceptance, like we, we want you here, we're with you, but gospel truth, but then time is so critical because that's how God works. He, he doesn't, he, he saves us, but there's the doctrine of a progressive sanctification is one Mm -hmm. in which he he brings us into his family and then he progressively transforms us into the image of his son. And, and I think that's a piece that, that we need to remember that, that our transformation is, is, is a, a transformation over time. It's perfect in Christ. We're perfect, but we're being made perfect. And so you look at how God sees us, like you've been talking about, you know, do I see myself the way God sees me? Do I see you the way God sees you? The way God sees mm-hmm. me and the way God sees you is he sees us with incredible patience that mm-hmm. he knows the end of our life. He knows, you know, whether it's going to be a year, 10 years, 20, 30, whatever it will be. Um, and, and he's just incredibly patient to yeah. repentance again and again and again, and then ultimately to glorify us. And I think that, that's something that yeah. I think, do I, I'm ch- always challenged with. Do I have the, the eyes of Jesus? Do I see you the way Jesus sees you? But do I also have the demeanor and the patience of Jesus when it comes to your progress in, in the faith? Um, yeah. And one thing I think that we, 
really, I, I would say, prevents us from doing that rightly is one of the one of the phrases I love throughout the Bible is the fullness of time. In His fullness of time, so we can we can have patience. But one of the, obviously one of the differences between Jesus having patience than us is He already knew when the fullness of time would be, right? And He mm. knows that. And so we have to couple being patient, but not on our time. Like I can say, okay, well, in six weeks, they really should be at this point. They've heard enough. Like they ought to be able to make a good choice now. Well, what about the sovereignty of God? It's in his fullness of time that things occur. And so a lot of times when I'm frustrated, that's what keeps me grounded is it's not in the fullness of my time. It's the fullness of his time. And I don't know when that is. Yes, and so yes. I have to be patient till the fullness of time happens on his terms. Um, and I would say you made a comment, and this is where I think churches have got to question. Safety without doctrine isn't church, right? Safety without the gospel isn't church. And I would say gospel without safety and time is just doctrine. You can get that anywhere, right? And so you have to combine all of those things for it to actually be the body of Christ, like God designed the body of Christ to be. Um, and it's not just sharing the word. Otherwise, there would have been no need for the New Testament to constantly talk about the way that we love and the way that we treat one another and the way that we are towards even outsiders, because it wouldn't matter. It would just be doctrine, but it's not. It has to be all of it together. And it's not impossible. Yeah. I I, I want, you know, I wonder if relationship is is the key and all that too. If in order to have safety, in order to, have, I mean, there's safety, time, gospel, all of that. It's mm -hmm. meant to be in relationship. And yeah, I mean, you can have, it's hard to have safety without relationship. Um, you have time. You can have that, I guess, without relationship, but, and you can have gospel. I think sometimes a lot of times, sadly, without relationship, or that's how it can feel. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think a, a, a great need in all of this is, is coming back to the, the reality of God of the, being made in the image of God, who is relationship, father, mm -hmm. son, Holy spirit existing for all eternity in loving communion and relationship with, with one another. We're made in his yeah. image. So at the very heart and, and, and nature of who we are is relationship, body, soul. And, and that's so critical. Yeah, and if you read like Rosario Butterfield's uh, book, um, or if you've ever listened to the Beckett Cook show, like that's a really good one too, they would tell you they did not get transformed by doctrine alone, right? Like they were transformed in relationship. They can pinpoint people in their life that brought them to the point where they wanted to hear doctrine because they saw doctrine before that. And that's where the church is going to have to say, okay, we're not just okay on Sunday be with people who are struggling and hurting and different than we are, we're going to be more than okay to see if they want to go out to dinner with me, to see if they'd like to come over to our home. Maybe they want to come over to a family, you know, uh, sacred event, right? But we're going to say it's not just that family, it's our family. Um, that's where, you know, that's where it changes. Um, not just on a Sunday morning being shaking hands when you go around and then hearing the word and leaving. That's not relationship. Well, I think you said this earlier. It's not just defending the gospel. Those, I think there's a time for that and, and mm -hmm. places for that, but it, it, maybe it's also not just 
describing or declaring the gospel, though that is also needed, preaching, teaching, but it's also displaying the gospel. Yeah. That, how how critical that is. That's relationship. That's that's what you you just said. It's it's in our homes. It's it's the love. Mm-hmm. It's it's the compassion. It's the living out of the gospel that is that is so critical to um, yeah. to the way of Jesus. Yeah. Um, thank you, Pamela. This was so helpful. Mm-hmm. I know mean, there's so many more things we could talk about. Um, we'll we'll put. Oh, I remembered the book. Well, there, the mystery book, embodied. Yes, embodied. Um, I just can't remember the author now. It's not Lapine, I don't believe. It's um, is it pre, pre, Is it Preston? Preston Sprinkle. Preston Sprinkle. Okay. Yes. Yeah, embodied. Book. Great book. Great okay. book. Very balanced book. Embodied yeah. by Preston Sprinkle. It, he, his website too has a lot of resources. I know. Yeah, yeah. I found some of those helpful. Uh, so yeah, we'll put those in the show notes for folks. And, uh, and if you've got questions, you can reach out to us at, uh, at our website, gospelcarecollective.org. Uh, thanks again, Pamela. And we'll talk more later. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the gospel care podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'd love your feedback. If you have any comments, any suggestions for topics you'd like us to address in the weeks to come, months to come, uh, please let us know. We, we, we want to know what you want to hear. Uh, we've got lots of ideas, and you're going to hear from some of our other counselors and other friends of ours uh, over, over the different episodes that we do. But we'd love your suggestions. You can also visit our website at www gospelcarecollective.org and learn more about our counseling services, our training opportunities, and our consulting for churches and organizations. Visit us at www.gospelcarecollective.org. And that's how you can get a hold of us as well. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So lots of ways that you can connect with us, and we look forward to hearing from you. God bless.